Well, welcome to what we call church. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't mean this. I don't mean this beautiful building, which is great. We're so blessed to have it. But I'm not talking about these four walls and this ceiling. I'm talking about welcome to church. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you gathered together in Christ Jesus. I'm referring to this beautiful mess that we have on our hands here. In fact, my sermon is called Beautiful Mess. Uh, Turn to your neighbor, preferably not your spouse, and just say, hey, you're a beautiful mess this morning. (laughs) Now, I know we live in a very hypersensitive culture right now, so some of you may be offended. Get over it. (laughs) So why do I say that? Well, if you've been engaged in community of faith for any amount of time, you have experienced the beauty of this community. You have experienced the beauty of being gathered with like-minded believers in Christ Jesus. There's something unique about this kind of a gathering, whether it's here in these four walls and ceiling, whether it's at Tim Hortons, whether it's in the community, wherever it may be, when we gather as a church, there's something profound and powerful and unique about that. But if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, you have experienced, you've experienced the betrayal and the imperfections and the abuses. And those are just your contributions. <laughs> but all jokes aside, we are part of a deeply flawed gathering of people, and yet God mandates that we gather. And yet God mandates that we gather. Today we're going to be concluding our series in Colossians. Uh, Who's enjoyed this series? I I hope you have as we've gone through Colossians over the last several months. And this will be our last sermon. And it's going to be a little bit different. And you'll see why. We're going to be doing a little bit of a character study as we go through Paul's closing remarks to the Colossian church. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you to write something down. You ready? If some of you are taking notes, I have people come up to me all the time. They're like, hey, I take notes. This is my notebook. This is, and, I, and then sometimes I ask to see it, to see if there's grocery lists or other things going on in there during service. There's something powerful about taking notes. Like not, not, not just typing it, but like actually writing it down. Here's the main thing for today. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. The word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. And ecclesia is translated as the called out ones. Called out from what? Well, called out from the world. It's interesting because it has a very significant correlation to the word holy. And holy can be explained as this idea of being set apart. Set apart for something else. Holy. Ecclesia, the called out ones, called out from the world, set apart. It talks about holiness. It talks about this idea that we gather beyond just what everybody else gathers within human function and organization. This is different. This is unique. There's something different about this because we don't just gather with one another. We gather in the presence of God. There's something powerful about that that dynamic of the church gathering together. In the classic Greek, the word ecclesia, it almost exclusively speaks to political gatherings. So in the first century Greek, it would have talked about political gatherings. And and in fact, you were only the ecclesia when you were gathered. 
Okay, this is interesting. Just, just think, think this through. And this isn't, this idea doesn't go, this idea has some complexity. I'm not going to say this across the board, but this idea has some complexity. The ecclesia was only the ecclesia when they were gathered. And when the gathering dispersed, you no longer operated in the authority of the ecclesia, the political gathering, whatever it may be. It's an interesting thought, particularly when we think of Matthew 18, 20. And we love this verse. We talk about this verse all the time. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and, and just check it out. But Matthew 18, 20 says this. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We love this verse, don't we? Us Pentecostals, we've misused this verse so much. Because we use it in isolation. Do you know what this verse, the context of this verse is? This, the context of this verse is in the context of church discipline. The authority of the body to hold one another to a high standard. And so when it talks about two or three gathered, it's talking about the authority of a gathered church to be able to step out and, and, and to walk in discipline. The word of God doesn't leave a whole lot of wiggle room when it comes to the relationship between the believer and the church. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. The believer and the church. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. And today we're going to discover that Paul the Apostle embraced the beautiful mess that is the church. Both on an apostolic level, but also on a personal level. A deeply personal level. He depended on the ecclesia. He depended on the church. He was profoundly let down by the ecclesia. <laughs> he, he, was, he was betrayed by those of the church. And yet through it all, Paul remained a proponent of the gathered church, the local church. He was a champion for the church, for the body of Christ. So let's dig in. This is going to be a little bit different, but bear with me. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 4. And we're going to go verses 7 to 18. Colossians 4, 7 to 18. And we're not going to read the whole thing today, but I want to point out four people that Paul mentions in his closing remarks that have a significance for Paul, but also have a significance for day, today. In fact, as I was going through these characters and I was doing some study, it was, it was kind of amazing how the, the people that he brings up here reflect in a lot of ways the themes that we've seen throughout this book of Colossians. And you're going to kind of see those themes play out in the individuals that he brings up. And so if, if, you, if you're into marking your Bible, I highly recommend it. If you mark your Bible, grab a pen, grab a highlighter, whatever you need to do. I want you to just underline four names. Four names. The first one is Onesimus. Onesimus, you're going to see him. He's going to be the first one mentioned. Onesimus. The second is Aristarchus. Aristarchus. The third is Mark. Your translation may say John Mark. Mark. John Mark. Same guy. And the fourth is Demas. Demas. You're going to see him later on mentioned in that scripture. And it's interesting to think that, that Tychicus who's mentioned very first, he's the one that brought these letters to the Colossian church. And here's what's interesting about this dynamic. Because we talked a little bit about slavery. You remember that? 
Worship is work. And we talked about slavery and this dynamic of that, that the scriptures um, kind of addressed it. And so Colossians talks about it, holds up a new standard. This letter was read publicly to the church, okay, very public. At the same time, Tychicus would have brought a second letter at that same time. Most scholars agree that this is the timeline, that this was brought at the exact same time. And it would have been a letter to Philemon. And the book of Philemon, you're gonna, if you move a few pages over, you're going to find it there. It made it into the biblical canon, which means this collection of letters and books that are our Bible today. And what's interesting about that is, is Philemon was a, was a significant member of the Colossian church. In fact, in Philemon verse 2, we know that the church met in Philemon's house. They met in his house. And Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, who Paul mentions at the closing remarks of Colossians, publicly read out to the whole congregation. And Onesimus stole from Philemon and ran away. He was Philemon's, or he was Philemon's slave. He stole from him and ran away. So he's a runaway slave. He's stolen from his master. And somehow, some way, God orchestrates this moment where Onesimus is in Rome and he's under the teachings of Paul, and Paul leads him to Jesus. Paul leads this runaway slave, this thief, to Jesus. And then, in that moment, and I'm going to back up, because if you're here and you're, you're hearing us talk about slavery here, you need to go back, myevangel.church/media. you need to go back and listen to a sermon, I believe it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I'm going to go back two weeks ago, four weeks ago, okay, four weeks ago. And we address the biblical understanding of slavery and how Paul changed the dynamic around that with his teaching. And so I'm not going to get into that today, but go back about four weeks, listen to it online. You'll get a bit of a teaching to understand the biblical stance around all of these issues. Because this is a big issue, and this is a big deal. But if you read Philemon, I don't know if you've read the, the entire, it's, it's short, it's just one chapter. And you read the entire thing and it feels like just pure manipulation. It really does. I read it again just, just recently and it feels like manipulation. It's like this ironclad no escape. Uh, Paul, Paul basically says, you need to receive him back as a brother. You need to forgive him. You need to treat him well. You need to treat him as a brother. Not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ Jesus. Everything's, and, and, and the way he words it, he leaves the truth. He, here's the thing about the truth. You can read it and you can think that's manipulation, but no, no, no. The truth leaves no way of escape. And so as you're reading this letter, Philemon, the slave master who, who's has the church meeting in his house, is given this letter with no way of escape to the point where Paul actually says to Philemon at the end of the letter, hey, by the way, prepare a place for me. In your, prepare a room in your house for me. Because I'm going to come. When I come to Colossae, I'm going to stay with you. In other words, here's how you're supposed to treat Onesimus. And I'm going to come stay with you and make sure it's happening. I'm going to check up on you. And so... Philemon has no way of escape. He's called to this, this new dynamic of truth that Jesus equalizes everybody. 
And if you're a brother in Christ, you're a brother in Christ. You're a sister in Christ, you're a sister in Christ. And there's no hierarchy. All on one playing field. Onesimus is a slave without any rights in that culture and society. He's not only a slave without any rights, he's a slave that stole from his master and ran away. And this is significant because Paul isn't just paying lip service to this idea of equality in the church. He's seeing to it that it's practiced. And so not only does he send a letter to Philemon personally, he also praises Onesimus publicly in front of the entire congregation through his writing to that church. He honors Onesimus, a slave, to the rest of the church as his letter is read out loud. It was, uh, it was the days of the hippie movement. Uh, some of you here, you remember that. Some of you here, you don't remember it, which means you're probably part of it. But back in the 70s, there was a stark contrast between the peace and love movement of the church and the peace and love movement of society and culture and subculture. And a story is told of a church whose auditorium was full to the brim. All the seats were taken. And there was this dynamic where you saw men and boys in suits and ties. And you saw the women and the girls in, in Sunday dresses and their hats. You remember the hats? Some of you remember the hats? Sunday hats? And the service was in progress and the back doors open and in walks this hippie. And he stands out like a sore thumb contrasted with his deep plunging shirt and his colorful bell bottoms and his hair down past his shoulders. And he stands in the sea of suits and ties and Sunday dresses. And he begins to walk down the center aisle. And you can hear kind of the murmur as he gets closer and closer to the front. And because the church is full, there's no seating, he gets to the front row and he sits down on the floor, crosses his legs and begins to engage the service as the preacher's up preaching. Now this goes on for a little while, but then there's an elder in the church that's kind of had enough of, of, of the mumbling and the things that are going on around. And so he gets up and he's, he's elderly and he's got his cane. And he begins to make his way down. And, and the people kind of sigh a sigh of relief. Oh, good. Brother so-and-so is going to go and deal with this. And so he slowly makes his way down. And as he reaches the front, he begins to stand beside the young man. And everything kind of just hushes. Even the pastor is so caught up in the moment that he stops preaching. People are thinking, finally, someone's going to deal with this distraction. Someone's going to deal with this individual. And this old man takes his cane and he leans it against the front pew. And he slowly, with great trouble, gets down. And he sits beside this young man. And in that moment, everybody understands. People begin to weep. 
and ask for forgiveness for their judgment. This is Ecclesia. This is Ecclesia. This is the church. At least it should be. At least it should be. A community of faith where people who look much, much different than us live much different than us, sin different than us, can come and find a safe place of acceptance, of love, a place that they can explore faith in this Christ who has given his life for us. And this is what Paul does. This is what Paul does as he mentions Onesimus. Equality is the understanding that every human life has intrinsic value and worth. And this is part of the mandate of the church, the called out ones to give worth, to extend worth to every human life. Diversity united by Jesus. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. The second name mentioned is Aristarchus. And Aristarchus seems to be one of those friends that sticks closer than a brother. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we can make some pretty significant assumptions about his character and who he was as a man. He's mentioned a number of times in the writing of, of both Luke and of Paul. And we're first introduced to him during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul has been preaching Jesus and, and there's these tradesmen who build these statues, build these idols to the, to the goddess Diana, who is the goddess of that region. And they would worship this goddess, they had temples to this goddess. And Paul is here now talking about this God, Yahweh. One God, one true God. And so in Acts 19, 29, we read this. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So this moment comes where they rile up the city, and this riot ensues. And they go in, and Aristarchus was so a part of this movement with Paul that they, they grabbed him and they arrested him. They took them. Later we read that Paul is, is a prisoner. He's, he's setting sail for Rome. And who's there? You guessed it, Aristarchus. In Acts 27, verse 2, it says, And embarking in a ship of Adradantium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now in this letter to the Colossians, Paul refers to him as a fellow prisoner in Rome. This is Ecclesia. This is another picture of the church supporting, strengthening, and holding one another up. Not running away from the pain of others, but rather growing in the instinct to lean into the pain of your brothers and sisters. Paul was deeply invested into the relationships of those that he ministered with and around him. But he was also invested in by those same people. This is Ecclesia. This is the church. You were made for community. Listen, friends. The Lone Ranger Christian is an oxymoron. 
The Lone Ranger Christian is an oxymoron. You were made for community. And here's the beauty. The more we mature in this, the church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. And the more we mature in this, just like Aristarchus, who loved Paul deeply, instead of running from pain and running from persecution and and running from the things that, that would cause him great sacrifice, he began to lean into the pain of his brother. It wasn't even his own. And he would lean into the pain of those around him. Aristarchus, those that, that brother, that, that, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. For good or for bad. For good or for bad. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. There's a third name that is mentioned. And that is, that is Mark. And, and some of your translations may say John Mark. I'm just going to call him John Mark. And he was the cousin of Barnabas. And this is such an interesting story that, that Paul would bring this up. And I love the scriptures because they tell the truth. They don't, they don't sugarcoat stuff. When, when you read the writings of Scripture, particularly Luke, as he read, writes Acts, at the beginning of the church, he says all the beauty and he says all the mess. And we get a little bit of all of it. And Barnabas and John Mark, they, they were with Paul on his first missionary trip. However, there's a moment in this trip where John Mark ends up deserting them. And we find that in Acts 13. 13 to 14, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now the word left him here is actually a word that they would use for for someone who's run away. It's a word that they would use for a runaway slave in the first century. And so this isn't a mutual parting of ways. This is John Mark punked out and chickened out and left Paul and Barnabas in the middle of this missionary journey. In fact, it was so messy that Paul would not work with John Mark for a while. During another missionary journey, we read this account found in in Acts 15, verse 36. And it says, and after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return. And visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So now he's writing to the Colossian church about 12 years later. Roughly 12 years. And he goes out of his way to commend John Mark. He writes this in verse 10 of chapter 4. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas... Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. And here's why. This whole thing was played out in the community of Ecclesia. Everybody knew that Paul and John Mark had had a breach of trust in their relationship. 
And here's what's interesting about this moment. Paul seems to have an impulse to reaffirm John Mark to the Colossian church. He doesn't go into the details of the process that they've been through because there's none of their business. Instead, he protects the intimacy and the reparations that happen within their relationship together one-on-one. But because this was so public and everybody knew that they had a significant schism in their relationship, Paul goes out of his way to commend and reaffirm John Mark to the Colossians, which is keeping with the biblical model of conflict and community. I'm sure you can relate to the moment when one of your close friends betrayed another. Or even worse, some of you, those of you who are married, sometimes when someone betrays our spouse or hurts our spouse, it's actually harder for us to deal with. Anybody been there? Or someone hurts your very, very close friend, and though they're hurting and they're carrying a burden, you, like, it's almost like a bigger deal to you. You're, you hold that, you carry that. And I want you to think about that moment, because we've all experienced it. And I want you to think of it just as a microcosm of what happens in community of faith, in the ecclesia, in the church. Here's the deal. When conflict arrives and it's public, people very quickly take sides. It's human nature. We take sides. When there's a schism between two people and it's public, people take sides. And here's the interesting thing about the sides that we take. Because we are a beautiful mess. We tend to lean to the side of relationship as to, uh, instead of the side of understanding the facts and knowing what actually happened and hearing both sides of the story. Can we be honest? We suck at that. We really do. And so we tend to take sides based on relationship. And so when there's a schism in the church, Paul and John Mark have this moment where they're There's a schism in the relationship. I'm sure the early church took sides. I'm sure of it. But here's what happens. Particularly in community of faith. And I want to come back to that microcosm. I want to come back to that that moment where something happened. Particularly like let's think through your, your close friend or your spouse and someone harmed them, hurt them. Here's what happens though. Oftentimes, and this is more often than not, Your spouse or your close friend privately makes reparations, repairs relationship, goes and has a conversation and they deal with it, right? But they don't tell anybody. And here you are as a spouse or as a friend still camped out on the side of being angry and being bitter and being cynical towards that person. And meanwhile, they already dealt with it. They've already taken care of it. And yet these camps remain. Now take that into community. Take that into the greater, broader community. Two people can reconcile. And it's one-on-one and it's close and it's tight and it's done the right way. And yet everybody else can still be left in the lurch thinking that person's a horrible, horrible person. And yet forgiveness on a micro has already happened. But forgiveness on a macro in community of faith is just breeding anger 
and bitterness and unforgiveness. This is why Jesus outlines a teaching for dealing with conflict in both Matthew 5, 23 to 24 and Matthew 18, 15 and on. The first thing he says is if you're going to come to worship God, if you're going to come give your gifts to God and you have something against your brother, leave your gift. I want you to think about this. Leave your gift and go deal with it. Don't worship me and have bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards your brother or your sister. So he literally, and I want you to think about this because at that time in the first century, they would have brought their gifts to where? They would have brought it to Jerusalem. I mean, they could have been from Nazareth. They could have been from the Galilee. They could have been from, so I want you to think about the, just the, the idea of community gathered. They come to bring their gift and they realize I have something against a brother. I got something against a sister. Leave your gift. Hike for hours all the way back to your community and go deal with your stuff, with that individual. And what that does is that, that causes us every time we come into the worship, because we don't worship in isolation, we don't worship as individuals, although we do, but there's something bigger at play when we come and gather as ecclesia, we, we worship as the church. And so if you have something against a brother, you got something against a sister, leave your gift of worship and go deal with it. That's what Jesus calls us to. And how do we deal with it? Well, in, in, uh, in chapter 18 of Matthew, he lays it out. He makes it very painfully practical. He says, if you can, resolve it one-on-one. Don't get other people involved. Don't create camps. Here's what we do. Someone hurts us, and here's what we do. We take off and we go to everybody that we can and try to gather our tribe. That's what we do. That's human nature. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, there's something new at play here. When you're hurt, when someone hurts you, go to them one-on-one. Deal with it in isolation. Deal with it in relationship. But here's the deal. If it can't be resolved one-on-one, and can I just say most conflicts can be? If we're being honest, most of our conflicts that have ruined a relationship Let's be honest, we look back and we go, well, that was dumb. Right? We look back a decade, we look back five years and we go, well, that was stupid. That was immature. And so what Jesus says, hey, ask those questions now. If you have conflict with a brother or sister in Ecclesia, leave your gift and go talk with them one-on-one. If that doesn't work, bring two or three trusted brothers or sisters with you and deal with it again with two or three witnesses. So now you're doing it in community. But you're not doing it with everybody. You're doing it with the mature. You're doing it with those that you trust. You're doing it with those that can keep their mouths shut and love you enough and love the church enough and love the unity of the church and the spirit enough to help you walk through conflict. And then finally, if that doesn't work, Jesus says, then include the assembly. Then, then include the assembly and walk this thing out. And walk this thing out. This is how we deal with conflict. This is how Paul dealt with conflict. And yet in this moment, in this moment when 
when he's had this resolution with John Mark, because it was so public, he went out of his way to offer his reaffirmation of John Mark. And he commands the church in Colossae, if he comes to you, you receive him. You receive him like a brother. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. The final mention is, is, is rather a sad commentary. The final mention is a man named Demas. And Demas, in many ways, represents one of the, the more painful realities of being invested in ecclesia, being invested in this community of those that are set apart. Demas is mentioned three times by Paul. And, and each time, it seems to allude to this degeneration of faith in his life. William Barclay, he says, he says this about Demas. It is significant that Demas' name is the only one to which some comment of praise and appreciation is not attached. He is Demas and nothing more. There is a story behind the brief references to Demas in the letters of Paul. In Philemon, verse 24, he is grouped with those who are described as Paul's fellow laborers. Here in Colossians 4.14, he is simply Demas. And in the last mention of him, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he is Demas who has forsaken Paul because he loved this present world. We see this character, this man that sat under Paul's ministry, who knew one of the, probably one of the greatest leaders the church has ever known. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He planted more churches than the other apostles. He's arguably one of the most influential people apart from Jesus Christ himself. And yet here we see this man under that ministry, in that ecclesia, begin to degenerate in his faith. This serves as a warning to us as community of faith that we are going to have to endure this kind of heartache from time to time. Seeing those that love Jesus begin to go against Ecclesia, the called out ones. Ecclesia, the called out ones. Set apart. But it's also a warning to us as individuals that there is this element to this world that even as we're called out and set apart and in Ecclesia, we have to fight the urge to begin to look back to the world and the patterns of the world and the ways of the world and the vices and the temptations of the world. Paul mentions Demas, I believe, throughout his letters to give us a warning that we need to stay laser-focused on being those that are called out, that are made holy in Christ Jesus, so that means set apart. Set apart. We're different. The church isn't perfect, but it's necessary. I'm going to ask... Uh, Thank you. So welcome to the beautiful mess. Welcome to community of faith. Welcome to the church. 
If you're looking for a place to be elevated over others, this isn't it. It's in this body that we instead count others as more significant than ourselves. It's in this community that we value serving others as opposed to being served. Can I just say, we live in a society where equality, equality is, is our new idol. It is. I mean, you, 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 you start looking into the, you know, uh, post-secondary into the humanities and the studies and, and philosophy and equality is our culture and society's new idol. It is, it is the it is the Eden that we're chasing. This ideal. Can I just say I believe with this all my heart. The only place where you're going to find equality in diverse community gathered together is going to be the local church. It's going to be the local church. And I'm not talking about, you know, gather for three months or six months or I'm talking about for the long haul. I look around this room and I see those that have called this local church, this ecclesia, family and home for generations. I'm telling you, there's something powerful about gathering in diversity, different walks of life, different upbringings, different thoughts, different, and yet Jesus unites us through the power of the Spirit. What the world is chasing is found in the, in the local church. It's found in the local church. It's found in community with one another, injected by community with the Father God. If you're looking for a place to call home that has removed all risk from being hurt, this isn't it. Instead, we are learning how to journey through the tensions of being in proximity with one another over time. This is a place where we learn to forgive the way that Jesus forgave us. Here's the deal. So often we see people who leave church, leave ecclesia, and they try to live out their faith by themselves, away from everybody. Here's the problem. It's in the grinding and the tension and the back and forth of Ecclesia, of church, of gathered local church, that the spirit of truth begins to teach you something about forgiveness and for humbling yourself to be forgiven. That's why, that's why the Christian was never meant to do it alone. That's why staying home and watching the TV preacher is not enough. Because what we're doing right now, me talking to you, has so little to do with the growth that the Spirit is doing in your life. At the end of the day, the deep growth is what happens in Ecclesia. One another, encouraging one another. Sometimes messing up and hurting one another, but learning how to forgive. Learning how to deal with conflict 
in a way that Jesus lays out. If you're looking for a place to remove the risk of being hurt, this isn't it. And if you're looking for a place where you can be comfortable and not called upon, then this isn't it either. Instead, we lean into the pain of our brothers and sisters. We lean into the needs of others. This is the work of the Spirit in our life. We bear one another's burdens past the point of sacrifice. This is Ecclesia. This is the church. If you're looking for a conflict-free zone, this isn't it. Instead, we press into dealing with things quickly. We press into the prescription of Jesus to deal with it one-on-one, only involving others if resolution can't be found. Welcome to the beautiful mess where we pray with anticipation that prodigals will come home. And when they do, we run to them. We wrap our arms of love around them as an extension of the Father's love. Welcome to Ecclesia, where we share a mission that is bigger than any one of us. This is the church. This is evangel church, not not this. Okay, not this, not this. Come on, you, 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 you're the church. We're the church. And it's not about location. It's not about geography. It's not about this. That's Old Testament. <laughs> you're the church. You're the church. You're the church. Look around this room. Look around this room. You need one another. You need one another. The faith grown in isolation is weak and anemic. The faith grown in ecclesia is deep and vibrant and strong. You need one another. You are made for community. So Lord, Lord, would you forgive us for those moments and those times in our lives and we're all guilty, I'm guilty of it, where we've disparaged the church, where we've spoken ill of your bride. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, help us to see it through your eyes, this beautiful mess, these imperfect people made right through Jesus Christ gather together for a mission of sharing that gospel to the world. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would find it in our pain to forgive those who have caused it. Would you teach us something about forgiveness in community? For some of you, I believe the spirit of truth is just bringing some names or some pictures to your head.
church isn't perfect. I know you've been hurt by the church. We all have. We all have. And forgiveness isn't a one-time thing. It's not a, a moment in time. It's a journey. It's an ongoing process. Ask the Holy Spirit, give me grace. Give me the strength that I don't have to forgive. Because you holding bitterness isn't hurting the one who hurt you. You holding bitterness is just hurting yourself. It's like a cancer eating up your soul. Holy Spirit, would you extend grace to forgive in community today? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, would you cause us to be those that grow in faith? We thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.